Wow. Well, good morning, church. I'm Pastor AJ, one of your associate pastors. I want to thank Pastor Tellis and Hannah Beth for engaging and activating our youth in that moment. If you're a teen, if you're a young person, 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on you because of your age, but set the example in front of the believers in your conduct, in your speech, in your purity, in your behavior. So thank you. Uh, Youth ministry, Grace Loves, it's so good to see you guys changing the community like that. Well, today I've got a message for you coming from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. If you would like to turn there with me, we're going to jump right into it. The title of the message today is called Towers, Walls, and Temples. It's a look at how we can build a lasting dwelling place for the Spirit of God in our lives. We can build towers, walls, or temples. We're in Ephesians 2, verse 13 through 22. Would you read along with me? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father God, we look to you now to hear a word from heaven. Open our hearts, our eyes, and our ears to see and to feel and to understand what it is you're doing through us in Jesus' name. Uh, You've got to take a look at how the church in Ephesus was created to fully embrace and enjoy just what Paul is speaking to in this passage that I just read. We first see Paul goes to the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. You could read it tonight. That would be a great uh, additional thing to study if you wanted to. But uh, when Paul goes to Ephesus, he enters in this incredible Uh, a mix of powerful, miraculous signs and wonders and deep resistance, confusion, and chaos. Just some highlights from Acts 19. On on one hand, Paul encounters some disciples who who have never heard of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes them in Jesus' name. He lays hands on them. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They immediately begin prophesying and speaking in tongues. You have teaching that's received, believed, and applied to amazing effect. On the other hand, Paul ends up facing such resistance in the synagogue that he teaches in that after three months, he departs it, and he preaches the next two years outside of the, in the, outside of the synagogue in other temples. Because the Jewish religious leaders were so resistant and speaking such evil of what Paul was preaching that they drove him out. So on one hand, teaching that's received, believed, and applied. On the other hand, teaching that's rejected, refuted, and resisted. On one hand, 
Paul is so anointed by the Holy Spirit that even the handkerchiefs and the aprons that he wears are being taken from him to go heal people. Like there's such anointing on him that just even what he touches is healing people. So on one hand, you've got miracle signs and wonders on a scale we haven't seen since Christ himself, since the woman touched his garment and was healed by her faith. On the other hand, you have Jewish exorcists who see what Paul is doing and try to invoke the name of Jesus inappropriately to disastrous effects such that the evil spirit that they tried to drive out ends up beating, stripping naked, and driving out of the house seven men, seven sons of a man named Sceva. So on one hand, you've got miracle signs and wonders to amazing effect. On the other hand, you've got the name of Jesus invoked abusively to disastrous effect. On one hand, you've got Paul preaching for two years in Ephesus, leading so many to Christ that the city itself begins to undergo a transformation. And yet on the other hand, you have silversmiths whose job in life came from building silver idols to the Greek god Artemis, and they would sell these idols. Yet Paul's ministry was so disruptive that these men start a riot in the city against Paul and what's happening. So on one hand, the city undergoes a transformation. On the other hand, the city itself begins to riot in response. The environment of the church of Ephesus was born in powerful signs and wonders, and yet confusion, chaos, and rejection all in the same. And years later, Paul writes this letter to them. He's addressing a people who are ethnically, religiously, economically, traditionally divided. And he is attempting to apply the balm of the gospel to this greatly divided people. And to really get the setup for the passage that I read, you've got to remember what Paul says just before this. It's one of the most famous passages in scriptures in Ephesians 2, where he describes all of them as sons of wrath, sons of disobedience, those who were far from God, but God being rich in mercy, abounding in love, saved us by grace through faith. And this is a gift, Paul writes. It's not based on your works so that nobody can boast. It is the free gift of God. It is salvation. And see, Paul had to say that because um, the, the church was divided ethnically. Specifically, he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles. Jews who adhered to the law, they were in the covenant family, Gentiles were not. But Paul understands that the strength of the church of Christ comes from the unity of the believers that form it. The strength of the body of Christ comes from the unity of the believers who form it. And so Paul is addressing this divide. And he does it with these, with these radical, radical words where he is applying the balm of the gospel to help the Jews understand it's not by works. It's not by adherence to the law. It's not by what you've accomplished that makes you right with God. You are a son of wrath. While you were dead in your trespasses, that's when Christ died for you. Because if you've ever tried to live according to a moral code, if you've ever tried to live in a way where you were just saying like, okay, I'm going to take a cold turkey, hard stop, this bad habit is done, I'm going to start this good habit, you know that you have failed. Just like I have, just like everybody else in this room has. In your own strength, you can never do it. And Paul is reminding the Jews, in your striving to adhere to the law, you know you've fallen short. You've been saved by grace. And to the Gentiles on the other side, 
You were never in the covenant family. This, this covenant that, that was created hadn't previously extended to you. You weren't, you weren't in the family, but now you who were far off are being brought near. This is what Paul, this is what Paul says. Those who were far from God, hear me, church. Those of you who were far from God, you've been, you've, you've been, brought, you've been brought near to him. Jesus himself is the broker of a peace between us. He has made us one. In his one broken body, we become one whole body. Those who are far off are near because the dividing wall of hostility that separated us, it's been torn down in Jesus. It's been torn down in Jesus. And I know this is usually the part we say for the end of the sermon, but I think somebody needs to hear it freshly this Sunday morning, is that some of you have felt far off from God. You have felt like there are things in your life that make God hostile towards you, or maybe you're living with thoughts, actions, and behaviors that are hostile towards God, and the word of the Lord today for you is that that wall has been broken in Christ. The blood has been spilt on your behalf. You now are not far from God, but God is bringing you near. He's bringing you near to him. How does he do this? Well, Paul, Paul hits it on the head because the Jews had the 16, uh, 613 uh, covenant laws, the 10 commandments, and then 603 more laws that were added later and ritual sacrifice and temple presence and all of these things in order to be near to God. But Paul says in verse 15, Jesus does this by abolishing the law of the commandments and then the ordinances that were to come that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two and so broker peace between us. You see, the requirement of the law, Paul is telling us, the requirement to be near to God is no longer righteous, rigid adherence to the law. We are, we are not able to get near to God. We have to be brought near. We have to be brought near to God. The Jews thought that through their morally superior living, through their covenant uh, identity, that they could get near to God through purification rites, sacrifice, living right. But Jesus shatters that, and our God is the God with us. We cannot get near. We need to be brought near. And Jesus is the one who does that. Jesus brings us near out of grace through our faith in him. And this is where I want our starting point to be for this message today. Because if we can understand this and have common ground on this, where we go from here is really going really to make sense. That the good news Paul is teaching is that there are some of us who are distant, removed, and outside of, God, of relationship with God. We have walls that separate us off from him. And yet in Christ, the good news is that we are brought near to him. We can, we can be brought into covenant relationship with him. And that's true of all of us, Paul is saying. It's not just true for people who've never been to church before and never given their lives to Christ before. It's true for people who are in the church right now watching online. It's true of me. I need the same grace that you need. We all need it. None of us have achieved or attained righteousness on our own. We have tried and we have failed. We need the same grace. And this is a powerful truth, not just to understand the racial divide between Jews and Greeks. This is a powerful truth for you in your marriage, 
It's a powerful truth for you and your relationships, with your coworkers, with your parents, with your families, that you need the same grace that they need. We were not able to live a perfect, righteous life on our own. We have tried. You've tried. I'm sure you've tried. I've tried. Just by sheer willpower, I'm going to not do these things anymore, and I have failed. I'm not able to live a righteous life. And so what God says is, I'll do it for you. God, in his infinite mercy and love, says, you can't do it. I'm going to do it for you. And through Christ, he brings us near. If we can understand this truth, that we need the same grace, whether we have grew up in the church, whether we were baptized when we were two, when we've been speaking in tongues since we could talk, or whether we just are stumbling into the church today, broken, afraid, insecure, not sure what's happening, not even confident that there is a God, we all need the same grace. This revelation and understanding becomes the thing that radically transforms and unifies two desperately broken individuals. And with that perspective, the hostility that remains between us of of whether it's a racial divide like it was then or a righteous divide of I'm closer to God and you're not, I'm in and you're out, This understanding that we need the same grace, it tears down any hostility between us because we understand that the wrath I want to pour out on you has already been poured out on Christ on the cross. And we are now both collectively brought near to our Savior. We are one now. We can have peace now. We don't need to be divided now. And let me tell you, when I say this will help your marriage I mean this will help your marriage. When you realize that your spouse is just as selfish, immature, and irresponsible as you are, that they need the same grace, the same Savior that you do, that when you try to do right, you fail, but come on, give me some grace, I'm trying, and when they try and fail, you see, see, I told you you can't change. Stepping on some toes this morning, that's okay. It's just real life. We're in the house of God. But when we realize I need grace every day from my Savior just to even try to think right, and I realize you do too, the hostility that exists between us begins to dissipate because we reflect, God, you have been patient and long-suffering with me. You have been kind to me. Every time I ask for forgiveness, every time I take the bread and the cup of communion, you are right there to forgive me and to reconcile me to you. That which we have freely received, now in our relationships we can freely give to one another. We need the same grace. Now in our church, we don't necessarily have the the issues that the uh, church in Ephesus had which was that Orthodox Jews or Messianic Jews trying to integrate with Gentiles and trying to figure out, you know, who's in, who's out, how do we do this new covenant thing. We don't so much have that, but we have plenty of our own issues, don't we, in the church of God today? I'm not being critical. I'm just, it's just the truth. We're all, you know, we're all a part of it. We puff ourselves up and think that others should serve us. And when there's a fence against us or someone doesn't meet our expectations or someone isn't there when we needed them to be there, we, we hold up this wall that says, you wronged me. I'm going to keep you at arm's length. As if God ever did that with us. We battle the issues of, of pride and self-righteousness that some are more worthy than others. Some are more righteous than others. Yet we forget Romans 5 that yet while I was still a sinner, while I was still a sinner, 
That's when Christ died for me. We certainly see the issues of racial and ethnic divides still in our community, still coming up. And whether that's, that's a demand that others identify and acknowledge and repent for the pain that you and your people feel, or the other side, which is to say, I don't even want to enter in the conversation because it's all perceived, it's really not so bad, you're overreacting. Either way, these are subtle and not so subtle ways that we build dividing walls of hostility between us. You see, Christ has broken the dividing wall between us and God, and we freely receive that. We love that. We love that. But when we apply it to one another, it gets, gets, a, little bit, gets a little bit tougher, doesn't it? Citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of the new humanity that Christ has formed must learn to override our instinct for self-preservation and allow a deep and stirring compassion for our fellow man to permeate every thought and action that we have. This is what we see Jesus do in the garden of Gethsemane shortly before he's crucified. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, self-preservation. If I don't have to do it, please don't, please don't make me do it. Yet, it's not my will that I'm after. It's your will. He let his compassion for us, his devotion to the Father, be the thing that overrode his instinct for self-preservation. And in doing so, the dividing wall of hostility between us and God was broken by Christ's humility in the garden. In dividing walls of hostility, think you guys know, are plaguing our society right now. Our church, our politics, maybe even your place of work, maybe even your family, maybe even your household. There are walls of hostility. There's topics you don't broach. There's things you don't talk about. There's distance you just keep because we just, you know, if we go there, it's going to get messy. And so I want to talk about this and what is the root that's behind it because in Ephesus, it was clear, it was Jew and Gentile, and we've talked about that, but the root of this The root of the divide is always the same. It always comes back to what's at the heart of our sin nature, pride and fear. We're afraid. We're afraid of losing what we have or not getting what we want, missing out on something. We're afraid that we're not enough, so in pride we pretend to be something that we're not. We're afraid that people won't accept us, so in pride, we reject them first. We push them away. We hold them at arm's arm's length. We're afraid that others will discover who we truly are, and we will have to deal with the guilt and the shame that we carry, so we hide from them, and we withdraw, and we don't allow others in. We operate instinctively out of self-preservation. I'm going to protect myself from you, or I'm going to make myself better in my eyes than you, but either way, I'm going to leave this wall up between us. The root of it is that we are self-serving, self-preserving. We want to make more of ourselves. We want to protect ourselves. We want to control the terms of the agreement. And this is the lie that we see in the garden. This is exactly what happens in the garden. The serpent comes to Eve and says what? God knows that when you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God you will know good and evil. It's this lie that your eyes are gonna be open to something you hadn't seen before, like God was, God was withholding something from you. It's this, this idea that, that you're gonna to get to define the terms of the agreement. You get to say what good and evil is. You should have that control. Nobody should tell you what you can and can't do. You should make that determination for yourself. 
It's this lie that you should be in the place of God. And yet what's tragic is that we live in constant pursuit of a truth that already resides within us. You see, we, when we believe this lie that we've got to protect ourselves, to gain more, to be accepted, to be loved, we overlook the reality of the truth of the situation into which we were created. We were created image bearers, not of man, but of God. We were created to be approved and accepted and loved. We were created for fellowship with the Father, to be in relationship. That's what he wanted from us. That's what he wants from us still. It's, 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 it's God's desire from the start is not to withhold from us, but to be generous and to bless us and to not withhold anything from us. And yet we believe the lie that we need to go earn those things and go find those things because we're deprived of them. We're living in constant pursuit of a truth that already resides within us. We're not going to become like God. We were already made in his image. We're not going to find fellowship that satisfies the inners of our heart because God created us to be in fellowship with him. We don't need to withhold and, 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 and keep and acquire and accrue because we, we were designed to be blessed abundantly in the garden, not having any needs of our own. So we pursue lives that honor ourselves. We build careers to serve ourselves. We build families and have relationships because they, because they do something to us. They fill us. They help us. They serve us. It's what Eve did in the garden, and it's what we keep doing time and time again. After the garden, you know, God removes Adam and Eve from the garden. He kicks them out, and the Bible uses these words. I love it. Um, there is ever-increasing corruption in the earth. Ever-increasing corruption. I think uh, it says in Genesis that we did only evil always. That's what we did. All we did was evil at all times. And so God sends a flood. He wipes the earth. He saves Noah and his family. He brings them off the boat and he makes a covenant with Noah and his family. And he says, never again will I strike the ground like this. Never again will I wipe out all living creatures. But you, Noah, you be fruitful you multiply and I will bless you. Yet again, God's desire for us is to bless us. And so Noah and his family, they do that. They're fruitful. They multiply. You can read Genesis 10 and 9. There's all these you know, tribes that come out of him. And what do the descendants of Noah immediately do? They build a tower to honor themselves. Genesis 11, they build the Tower of Babel. They say this about themselves. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Yet again, what does humanity do? We build a tower to ourselves. We build lives to honor ourselves. We're in pursuit again of our own individual worth. Let us make a name for ourselves. How many of us have that same instinct? You know you've got it. Let me make a name for myself. Let me prove to others I'm worth more than anyone bargained for. That's a Hamilton reference for the deep cuts. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's what we do. That's what our desire is. Mankind, yet again, is attempting to secure in the earth something that had already been secured at creation. 
eat of the fruit. God is withholding something from you. Eat, be like God, see what he sees. Build a tower to the heavens and be, and be honored and be glorified like God is. Be like God. Adhere rigidly to the law. Live a morally superior life. Be superior to your fellow man and let them know. And be like God. The devil whispers in our ears over and over again, you deserve more. You ought to have more. People ought to respect you more. They ought to honor you more. You ought to be like God. And yet we live in constant pursuit of a truth that already resides in us. We were already made in his image. We don't need to become like him. He made us to be like him. The Tower of Babel is a structure that we built that ultimately led to our separation and our division. It was a monument to our individualism, to our self-reliance, to our self-strength, and God confuses our language and separates humanity because we were such a threat to ourselves. The Tower of Babel is a rejection of God and a reliance on self. Hear me, it's a rejection of God, it's a reliance on self, and it's what drives us to division and separation from each other. When we build towers to ourselves, we end up separated from God and from each other. I want to illustrate this for you. So, uh, Nick, if you can bring uh, my table and uh, things out here. Um, I could think of no better way to communicate this point than with this illustration. When we build towers to ourselves, we end up separated from God and from each other. Thank you. This is Nick. He uh, runs things in the back. You never see him. And yet you always feel his presence, whether you know it or not. So thank you. Thank you, brother. It's kind of like the Holy Spirit. You never see him, but you always feel. Um, when we realize our need for grace, when we realize that we all need the same grace, when we understand that the dividing wall of hostility between us and God has been torn down, and that now what remains is the dividing wall of hostility between each other. If we don't follow that thought through to completion, we end up building towers and monuments to ourselves. Uh, these, are, these are my kids' toys. Uh, these are magnetiles. I have three kids. I talk about them all the time because I love them that much. But these are uh, just little magnetic blocks. They stick together. And uh, my kids are four, two, and two months. And we... Uh, argue and fight over these toys a lot. So I thought I'd just take them out of the house and play with them with you guys. Uh, just kidding. When we build towers to ourselves, we end up separated from God and each other. Uh, this is you. Uh, and you, maybe this is even Christ as your cornerstone. It's beautiful. And throughout the course of your life, you have experiences. Uh, you go to school, you get education. You acquire skills. Uh, at some point, maybe you get a degree uh, and a job, and the job pays well. And maybe over time, you get a promotion, and you're able to take great vacations, and uh, you acquire wisdom and years of experience, and you build a life that looks great. It's tall. It looks good. It's in order. It's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with this life. It's a life, it's a life built on my experiences, what I've been through, 
what I've done. And there's other people that uh, build their lives. This is them, and maybe Christ is their cornerstone too. This is not exclusive to sinners or saints. This is just who we are. We build our lives on, uh, maybe we're on the worship team. I'll pick on them because they're here today. Um, and they, have, they can sing. Oh, my goodness. And not only can they sing, they can play instruments. Not only can they play instruments and sing, but they dress really, really well. They have the best clothing. They've got a great winsome smile. Their personality, everybody loves to be around them. They just, they have so many followers. They get, they're, you know, they get to all this. They're just up here. They're dancing. They're having so much fun. And, and they're just the life of every room that they walk in. And they've built their life. This is not being critical, Tiffany, Pastor Tiffany, of anybody on your team. I'm just, you know, it's an illustration. They've built their life on their personality, who they are, center of attention, people love me. It's who I am. I get affirmed by that. Maybe there's a single mom or a stay-at-home mom, and you're identified by your kids. You've got three of them. One, two, three kids, and they're just your whole world. And over time, you've lost your identity, as many mothers do. There's no shame in that. But you just become obsessed with the success of your children. Are you homeschooling well enough? Are they advancing well enough? Are they, are they you know, progressing at a faster interval than other people their age? Uh, and you become defined by the things that you do. And you build a life whose value comes by the things that you've accomplished. Maybe you build on your experiences. Maybe you build on your personality. Maybe you build on your accomplishments. Or, or maybe this is you and uh, you got that GameStop stock early. You sold it at the right time. You reinvested that. You've got the 401k. You've got the big promotion. You've got the great Mercedes. You've got the good vacation, the good watches, the good clothes, the big house, and everybody knows it. And you have built your life on what you have. You've built your life on what you have. Four beautiful lives. They're standing tall. They're looking good. We build on what we have maybe what we do, what we accomplish, who we are, or the experiences that we've had in our lives. And this becomes us. And this is how we build. Many of us, this is how we build our lives. We build individually towers to ourselves. But the thing is this, you guys, is that when we build by ourselves, we may grow tall, but we will not grow strong. When we build lives by ourselves for ourselves, we may, grow, we may grow tall, but we won't grow strong. And Christ even may be our cornerstone. He, he, may, he may be a piece of our life that years ago, years ago, you know, we were at youth camp and, 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 or we grew up in the church. And so God, you know, God's always been a part of my life. Church has always been a part of my life. But he's just, he's just a little block I keep down there. But really what I've built on over time is what I've accomplished and we're not so concerned, we're more concerned with how big we are than how big Christ is in us. And we measure ourselves by a standard that the world keeps. We build a tower, we build towers to ourselves, to our individualism. And as we get around others, we feel like our opinions ought to be heard. Because, you know, I, I didn't really like that new guy who showed up on the worship team. He, people like him more than me. 
Why do they like him more than me? I used to be the, I used to be the guy. He's the guy? She's the guy? I was the center of attention. And then your worth immediately begins to what? Something happens. Maybe you find another single, uh, single mom or a stay-at-home mom who's homeschooling. And, and, and boy, she's doing the curriculum. And she's got the Instagram videos to prove it. And, and she's doing all kinds of arts and crafts. And maybe your self-worth begins to become in check. And things begin to teeter. Or maybe there's somebody else who's got a nicer car than you, a bigger house than you. You've built a tower to yourself. And then when we do that, we live to protect what we have and who we are. And we forget about the compassion that we are required to have for one another. We forget the things that unite us together because we build for ourselves. And we come to the church building this is not just a criticism of the church. This is, we see this in politics. You see this in your community. But we build these towers of Babel to ourselves. Let me make a name for myself. Come and tight on this camera. And we stand around the church building. And we haven't built towers. We've built a wall. We've built a wall. We've built a dividing wall of hostility because we've become a people who are so concerned with ourselves and getting our own that anybody who has better or different, we want to now immediately reject and keep at arm's length. We have stood up a dividing wall of hostility unintentionally. When the church is filled with towers, it becomes a wall of hostility. And we've got to resist this. We've got to fight against this. Might it be not Jew and Greek, but the cause of dividing walls of hostility in our day and age is Bible-believing, church-going, reconciled members of the household of God who have not fully embraced their new humanity, who have not truly died to themselves to have compassion for their brother and their sister, and yet they hold them at arm's length instead to protect themselves because they're afraid of what they might lose somebody else might get more and I might lose, I might lose mine. If we believe, I mean, if we really believe this, if we really believe that the presence of God is the only place that can, as Ezekiel 37 says, take a stone heart out of a man and replace it with the heart of flesh, if the presence of God is the only place that can transform a man from the inside out, then ought it be that we have no walls, no barriers, and no restrictions to the access of those who are against us to encounter the presence of the God who is for us? Ought we to build differently? When the church builds towers, we turn into a wall. And here's what you've got to know. Every tower we build in our own strength will fall. The crisis will come. Death comes for us all. Sickness comes. And it will rock you to your core if you're not built properly. I've sat with too many who have lost loved ones unexpectedly this last year. Friend who lost a sister. Spouse gone too soon. Job 
lost in a pandemic. And maybe this is you, small group member, servant in the house of the Lord. You've gone through the membership track and you have checked all the right religious boxes off for yourself and yet you've never truly given yourself to another. Nobody knows your marriage is a mess. Nobody knows your addictions. Yeah, you go to church, you serve, you're in the group, but you have built a tower to the facade of a good churchgoer. And the crisis will come that will check your faith. And you too will fall. If you haven't built correctly. Now the good news is this. In order to build well, we have the opportunity to rebuild. And in order to build well, the towers have to fall down. This is what Paul is saying in our text. You were sons of wrath. You were sons of disobedience. Yet while you were still far from God, that is why, that is when he died for you. And we allow the tower to our pride and our self-image to fall and we allow the good shepherd, we allow the lover of our soul, Jesus, to come and pick up the pieces of our life and with tender love and compassion, piece by piece, he rebuilds us. And he finds us in our shame. He finds us in our brokenness. And he carefully, like a good friend, picks us up out of our sin. And he rebuilds us on solid ground. There is a God, I'm telling you, church, who will allow your tower to be torn down today. And there is somebody, I think, watching right now who has built a tower to their image. And God is wrecking it right now. He is tearing it down right now. Lean into that. Just embrace it. Because on the other side of that is a compassionate, loving God who will pick up every piece of your life and rebuild you. Christ rebuilds us. The old is gone. You are a new creation now in Christ. But Christ never intended to build us to be alone. Let me finish, let me finish our passage. Let me read the last four verses as I close here. Verse 18, if you want to turn there, we're going to pick this thought up and then finish the illustration. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access. The dividing wall of hostility is gone. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What if, we, what if we took that for what it meant? That as we rebuild our lives, we build not on our own, but maybe we take the cross, the cross of Christ. Maybe we take the cross of Christ and we let that be our foundation stone, like Paul says. And maybe we take 
the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. We remember what Isaiah said when he said, there will be one coming to rescue you, a righteous king, a perfect king, and he will be wounded for your transgressions, but by his stripes you will be healed. And what if we take the words of the apostles and we build on the foundation of the apostles what Paul says, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And as we draw near to God, God will draw near to us and that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in a man and that man's name is Jesus. His blood is the atonement for your sin. And we build our lives on that and we commit ourselves to the daily devotion of spiritual disciplines. We read our Bible every day. And we fast and we pray and we grow in our intimacy with the Father. And then, ooh, what if we joined a small group? What if we served on a team or whatever the thing is, go through the membership track, but we knit ourselves intimately to the body of the church to which God has called us? What if we let the cross of Christ, what if we let... The cross of Christ be the thing that unified us because Paul tells me I'm no longer a stranger or an alien. I'm a member of the household of God. I'm a fellow citizen. I am an heir. And if an heir, then a son. And if a son, I can cry out with a spirit of adoption, Abba, Father, you already see where I'm going, so let's do it. Paul says you are no longer a stranger. Paul says, you are no longer an alien. Come on, somebody. Paul says, you are a member of the household of God. You are a fellow citizen of his house. You are a part of something bigger than yourselves. You are hemmed in from above. You are joining together. Every part of you, every piece of you are being joined together into a holy temple of the presence of the living God. Now I'm just playing with blocks because it's fun. But what if we let this be true of us? That we don't build towers, but we build, but we build temples. We build something stronger than we were when we started. We don't allow ourselves to be isolated, to be far off, to be distanced from each other. We break down the dividing wall of hostility and we join together at the foundation stone of Christ on the cross, the words of the apostles and the prophets. Those around us that we're in community with, we give ourselves to one another. We don't allow ourselves to be separated. We allow ourselves to be family. And in so doing, we develop a temple to the presence of the living God. And you know what? The storms will still come. They still come. But when the storms come now, When the storms come now, things might fall, but the structure remains because your strength is not on your own. Your strength comes from something bigger than you. Your strength is not in your ability or your identity or whether man approves you. Your strength comes from the foundation stone of God. You are hemmed in by a body of believers that supports you, that walk with you. The tower, the temple stands. And as you rebuild your life, as you pick up the pieces, as you mourn the loss of a loved one, 
as you pray for that prodigal child to come back. You don't live and subside on your own strength. You subside on a greater strength. There is one far greater, all of us being parts of the temple of the body of Christ, being joined together to become a dwelling place for the Lord. Church, that is my message for you today. The dividing walls of hostility between us, they have been overcome by Christ and that which we freely receive, let us freely give. We ought not be building towers to our individual selves because when we build a tower, it turns into a wall of division and hostility. Let us instead be the church that God has called us to be. He has made us to be. Let us build a temple in which the presence of God resides fully. And let's see what the church of Christ can do when we tear down ourselves and we build up in Christ. Let me pray for you. Father God, Lord, we thank you for the word that you've spoken to us today. Father, we thank you for what you're revealing to us now. Holy Spirit, do the work that you're doing and the hearts and minds of many at this moment who are watching.